Today, I'm here with Alex Gorsuch. Dude, thank you for coming, man. You know, as they used to say on the radio, Graham, long-time listener, first-time caller. Right on. For listeners right now, if you're one of those listeners, long-time listeners, however, if you're fascinated like by this intersection of national defense, entrepreneurship, um, high-tech innovation, then you probably want to hear what Alex has to say. He's got a lot of insights on successfully navigating this defense contract, uh, contracting space over about a decade or more. He's got hard one lesson that we can all learn from and take into our own journey. So as a pioneer tech for first responders and service members, Alex, thank you so much again for coming in and recording with me. Thank you for having me, Graham. I'm excited. So Alex, dude, what are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. So my team is sent fundamentally. I can say what we do very simply, um, because it's interesting because one of our technical issues is actually abstraction and I can double click on that and talk a little bit more. Cause I think that's really important for technical innovators to realize. So fundamentally we put sensors on humans in dismounted operations. Now those humans can be first responders like SWAT, like firefighters, they can be warfighters. They can be whatever. Fundamentally, when a group of, a small group of highly trained folks go in to an austere, chaotic battle space, again, whether that's a, a traditional battle space or an inferno, we put sensors on them, which enables command to see where their people are with sub one meter accuracy in gene assessment environments, how they're doing, as well as what the adversary is up to. Now, through that abstraction, we can define that adversary as a bad guy with a gun or an inferno again. But fundamentally, when people go in to do a hard job, where are they? How are they doing? And what's the adversary up to? Did you like it? Did you just, you jump right into solving this problem or how did you get into this problem solving space? Yeah. So that's a great question. So this is my second business. My first one, I was building portable modular Seaburn labs for DOD stuff. And that first business, I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I worked on some really cool, super, super esoteric nerdy tech called loop mediated isothermal amplification. Made a little module for it. It was super neat. But fundamentally, I did the thing that nearly all young, both physically young, as well as young in their entrepreneurial innovative journey did where I fell in love with, with the patents, with the tech, with the investors, although I didn't get many, I'm not good at interfacing with investors. I'm called to higher glory, getting, getting contracts from the DOD, et cetera, falling in love with all those things that are proxies for metrics of mission success. But I didn't do the most important thing, which was truly understand the operational pain points, the mission pain points, as well as the transactional barriers in my way so that I could build a battering ram and crush them down. Fundamentally, then I decided to shift away from tech entrepreneurship for a little bit. I got burnt out on it. I was a solo founder, which is incredibly hard. It is incredibly hard. A lot of responsibility. And at the time I didn't climb as much, so my shoulders weren't as strong. So then I took a break for around five years, did a bunch of teaching. I taught some courses for Army Research Lab, National Science Foundation, 
New Mexico State, where I did my master's, University of Illinois, where I did my undergrad, Homeland Security, NASA, et cetera. Would teach for anyone who would listen, fundamentally. Anyone who would listen and pay me. Anyone who would listen. And the subject, the thesis of everything I taught boiled down to really simple. Cool. So you have cool tech. Neat. Less than 4% of U.S. patents are ever commercialized because most technology is built by nerds in a lab who never go out and actually seek to understand whose life is this going to make easier? Whose money is this going to save? Whose time will this save? For the kind of things we build or dissent, whose life is this going to save? And what is in my way? What are the ingrained Byzantine accounting, purchasing decisions, et cetera, that stop, that will attempt to um, hinder innovation to mission success. Um, yeah. They try to wed in that gap. So fundamentally, I taught that for five years. And then I met my co-founder, Paul. We were both mentoring teams in the iVenture Accelerator. It's one of the many accelerators at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And Paul was coming off his second business as well, building um, deployable solar generators for Air Force and Space Force. There's a little ISO container that would unfold out to a football field. It was incredible tech. Super smart guys. But yeah, so we both were mentoring teams. And I would say to teams, hey, that's a really cool tech you're building. Neat idea, probably patentable. But like, who gives a crap? Who's this going to help? Who's going to give you money in exchange for this technology? And if you can't answer the question, then stop working on the tech and figure that out. Because you need to know if the years of getting kicked in the teeth and having doors slammed in your face is worth the time. So then Paul would talk to teams and he'd say very similar, hey, who's going to pay for this? And they would say, this really scary looking Viking guy said the same thing to me, really pushed me to find customers. So then I sent Paul a Slack message and I said, hey, heard you've also done some defense stuff, but let's hang out, buddy. And then we hung out and ended up starting Ascent. And when we started Ascent, we were not like, what would be really cool? Let's build the unifying dashboard for high intensity, small unit tactics, where we tell command where their people are, how they're doing, and what the adversary is up to. We didn't start with any of that. We literally started with, like, hey, we're reasonably intelligent people with some amount of connections in industry. Let's find a problem. Let's find a problem that will be enjoyable to solve. Let's find a problem that will do good to solve, that will save lives. And let's find a problem where we can hoard gold like dragons to solve. And then we did. We talked to over 2,000 firefighters across the U.S. to really understand the operational pain to be solved, as well as the transactional hurdles in our way. So was firefighting, was that the, do you have a, do you have a passion and invested interest? Are you a fighter that you chose to start there? Or was that just where the human-centered design journey led you? Exactly. Human-centered design journey. I have a cousin who was lost to fire, I don't know, five years ago or something. But honestly, I never met the guy. So yeah, yeah. pretty much no real connection, no real organic connection to firefighting. But that's just where the design thinking journey led to find the easily, not easily solvable problem. <laughs> Wish it was easy to find the interesting to solve problem. Also, we were working on some early solicitations. When we first started, we were down in Champaign out of the Champaign, Illinois, 
out of the Enterprise Works Accelerator or Incubator out of the, the university there. And we spent a little bit of time at the Illinois Fire Service Institute, which trains most firefighters around the Midwest. It's a real like kind of thought leadership, et cetera, place in terms of structural firefighting training. And we were there testing out some of the toys, doing some ruggedization tests. And one of them said, hey, it looks like you're working on something that's not for firefighting that could potentially be useful for firefighting. Because at the time when we first started, one of the first, actually the first proposal we ever went after was the Softworks Viper Challenge, the versatile integrated protection and encumbrance reduction. Basically, hey, gas masks suck, make them suck less. We did the thing that two, two engineers from the University of Illinois would do, where we would, okay, cool. Let's just take a mask and let's just stuff it full of sensors. Let's put in a HUD. Let's whatever. Let's bring insight to the warrior on the front lines. We realized pretty quickly, particularly as we talked more and more to more structural firefighters, more warfighters, is while it was really cool to walk around the house and scare my dog and feel like Iron Man with a little HUD in my helmet, the problem was not for the individual human. That is a problem. But the larger problem was that command and control on the outside. Like I said, where's my people? How are they doing? What's the adversary up to? Yeah. I love that you found that because I, a lot, I, I talked to a lot of people or companies, groups of thinkers with ideas who they understand like there is a pain there. They have found a pain to solve, but what they don't realize is that the pain of the service is actually tolerated at the individual level. Mm. So you have to, yeah, you really have to go down and talk to the people who are experiencing that problem to find out, yeah, that's a problem, but I'm, it's not a big problem or it's like not a thing that I'm just going to take it off. That's yeah. problem solved for me. So yeah, are you solving the right problem? Where did you, you got to learn all that stuff or did you learn like this human center design journey? Did you go through this in teaching it or did you learn about it beforehand and then go, oh, I'm going to go teach it or like, where did you get your mastery of that? Where First of all, I would hesitate to call myself a master in, in, in anything, but I have, a, I have a, a disparate set of skills. My skill stack is, is pretty broad, uh, as they say. Fundamentally, I think I first started exploring, although I didn't know, like I didn't have the words to actualize human-centered design, et cetera. So my undergrad was actually in psychology which is, it's crazy, whatever, studied psychology, now like chief technology officer, tech company, blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, I believe in humans. And that's what I studied in psychology. I also spent a heck of a lot of time not going to class and running studies in the functional MRI lab and particularly diffusion tensor imaging. more like cognitive neuroscience than psychology. That being said, a lot of my time was spent studying people. I believe people are the single greatest problem-solving technology to ever exist. Sometimes the problems we come out, or sometimes the solutions to problems that we come up with might create more problems intrinsically in and of themselves. But fundamentally, if you want to solve a problem and really understand the problem, like you said, you, you really have to go to that, like, that base unit level, that individual experiencing the problem. And that's what I thought I was doing in my first company. And, and I did a little bit, not nearly the amount we are now. So I started with this like baseline understanding of humans. Humans are storytellers. 
We are story followers and innovation, nations, whatever, companies, everything is a story. Missions, everything is a story. And we just need to find the critical leverage points, right? The gaps or the redundancies in the story to, to close the story. Fundamentally, I really honed that skill set just through all the different, like, kind of wacky experiences that I had in my life when I was a, you know, young 20 something who was doing not the things that a young 20 something should be doing dog sledding, rescuing penguins in South Africa and rehabbing or rehabbing penguins and rescuing lions from poachers, et cetera, and spending way too much time camping out in the superstition mountains of Phoenix and just reading a lot of Ed Abbey and just talking to people. I believe in people. I believe in people's ability to find solutions. And if I can enable those solutions through technology, enable wisdom, particularly on the edge of human performance, then it's a good yeah. mission. Right on, right on. I like that. You're, you're actually writing a book right now called Happiness Eat Unicorns, which coincidentally, I think would make a fantastic name for a metal brand. But how much of that people are in is, is going to be in that book? Yeah, pretty much the entire book. Oh, look at you. Look at you reading the LinkedIn bio. <laughs> That's what it's Yeah, no, I'm proud of it. I'm on page 100 or so. And I'd right. like to get it to around 150, 175, 200-ish before I put it out there in the wild. Yeah. When I started writing this book, I did the thing that, hate to draw a parallel, but did the thing a lot of first-time entrep tech entrepreneurship writers do. So I actually changed the title. It used to be just Hyenas Eat Unicorns, a guide for mission-driven tech entrepreneurship. And then through teaching, because I wrote most of the book, what I have written now, I wrote most of it when teaching, when talking to these innovators and talking to these entrepreneurs who sometimes like in the NSF courses would come with their own tech. And then sometimes like with, uh, with some of the stuff I did with FedTech and like ARL, et cetera, was bringing technology from other spaces or from national labs and trying to find that DOD use case, that warfighter use case for mission success. It was really, it was sparked through all those conversations where, you know, they, I'd talk to them about different books out there and I'd say, oh, read the Innovator Shalema, read the mom test, read, you know, there's so many, there's so many incredible, fantastic tech entrepreneurship books out there. But from talking to them, I realized that there was a bit of a gap and it's ironic given that's the kind of thesis of the book. The gap was there's so many books out there that are like, hey, you should do this thing. And, and very often it's exceptional. It's wonderful advice, right? Like, for example, I think the listeners have gotten the sense that I'm huge on mission discovery and really understanding and talking to humans that experience the problem and those who can, who hoard the gold to solve the problem. Hey, go talk to a bunch of people. That's really good advice, but that's all that it is. So then I started like cognitively reframing this book and thinking of it, not in terms of what generic broad, but well-meaning and well-written advice could I give, but what specific artifacts, what specific tactical implementations of these things could I give, for example, Instead of, oh, hey, go talk to a bunch of people. They'll really tell you how to solve it. I wrote out a huge amount of exercises in this book 
for example, for the customer discovery one. It's go talk to 10 people every single week. And then for each, it's a name, position, rank, agency, like whatever the relevant stuff is. What is their role, right? Are they a decision maker, an end user, a beneficiary, a, a saboteur, a gatekeeper? It's all these things. But really fun. To, and then like, what are their mission needs? What's in their way? Who did they, what three people did they tell you to talk to? So I started writing all these like actual workbooks, like literally, like I envisioned the book to be used as a workbook, not just, like I said, these generic great platitudes of go talk to humans, go understand your patent strategy. But here's a page with prompts and blank spaces for you to write in and do the actual exercise. So then I changed the title to Hyenas Eat Unicorns, a carnivore's workbook for mission-driven tech entrepreneurship. That's awesome. You, you've given, you're given the entrepreneur a lot to chew on because what you just described was like name, the agency, the user role, the, the mission needs, all of these are just individual points of data or data that, that are, that really mean nothing when they're alone. So if you can start to collect up all this data and then where do you start connecting it? What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Fundamentally, and I say this a lot, data is toxic. It's only data when bundled with context and action that's appropriate. For example, just a bunch of, hey, I talked to a bunch of humans and they said they're experiencing this problem and that's not that useful. But if you think about, for example, to use the fantastic AFWorks phase one open topic vehicle, if you think about your customer discovery specific to how you will utilize that, Right? So if you say to yourself, okay, maybe there's a problem with Air Force crash rescue and firefighting. But, you know, to give an example near and dear to my heart, if you then think about, okay, so there probably is a problem there. Who do I talk to? Do a little digging online, find, okay, 96 civil engineering squad. They're down at Eglin, part of the 96 test wing. Here's who they talk to. Oh, this is... A lot of the stuff here comes from AFCAC and Air Force Civil Engineer Center, which is under uh, installation and mission success. Think about that context and realize that the goal of this customer discovery, if you're in the ridiculously niche field of Air Force firefighting, for example, <laughs> the goal of this outreach is to understand the problem sufficiently and get a memorandum of understanding for the for AFWR for some specific artifact where someone that is, that is high enough has decision-making power enough for both an empowered and committed customer, meaning human who pays for things in these specific, our firefighting example, that would be someone at AFCAC, like a program manager, and someone who is a, an empowered and committed end user, like an installation level fire chief at a large mm -hmm. airbase. Again, for this specific example, but if you think about how can you drive your discovery towards those two things, those two goals, how do I talk to those humans, understand their problem space well enough to theorize a solution and then get them to sign an MOU for AFWorks that says, yes, in principle, if you solve our problem from the end user side and from the customer side, Yes, in principle, if this 
thing exists, if this widget proposed or platform or software, however you describe it, if this widget exists, then we would purchase this to solve the problem. So if you think about it like, like a spear, right? Like you're focusing all of this discovery towards that tip, right? Towards that like action. The data is talking to the humans, right? Yeah. Getting enough data. The context is the goal and the action is cohering to signatures on a page that'll get innovation to actually move the needle. So all those are like, what you described was taking a lot of the emotion out of our decision-making process, either as an entrepreneur or as the, the what you said is the empowered and committed end user. You're taking all that emotion out and you're providing it with operationally relevant data now because it has context around it. Oh, and like where's the point that you found SIBRs and CTRs and what are some like lessons and strategies that you've learned going through that process? Great question. So I've been in the SIBR game for hmm, like 14 years now. And I've written a heck of a lot more that have gotten denied than I've gotten funded. But each one I've learned. Sometimes when I'm feeling a bit, feeling a bit ennui, I like to pull out my very first NSF proposal and just go, what were you thinking? You're so crazy to really look at it. But I have realized that all Sibbers, sitters, or if you even expand to think OTA, Stratfies, like all these other super cool vehicles uh, that enable people to actually work with the DOD, which is the largest and most tech acquisitive of anything in the world from chicken bullion to cruise missiles. Um, they are things to enable people to work with it. Because when people think about, like, ah, yes, I'm going to sell to Mr. Department of Defense. That's a really hard road. Sivers, et cetera, are way, they are ways to get individual humans to connect on innovation centered around mission need to making the warfighter, to making the good guys stay on the chessboard or get the bad guys off the chessboard. That's what the Cyber program is for. When, just a quick note, when I say Cyber, of course, NSF, USDA, education, NOAA, NAD, like there's a bunch of Cybers. Fundamentally in 2021, the Cyber budget for every agency other than the DOD was like 2.8 billion. While the, the DOD Cyber um, budget alone was 2.2 billion. So the DOD does drive a lot of the cyber conversation, despite most people not in the defense world thinking of NSF, USDA, cybers, et cetera. So the number one thing I've learned is when most people write cybers, including myself in the beginning, it was like, hey, look at how smart I am. Look at how many big words I know. Gosh, I, yeah, I'm so smart. Can I have a cookie and like maybe millions of dollars from Cyber funding, please? But what I've realized is across the board, no matter which agency you're proposing to, there has to be a certain amount of technical risk because it would not be in the United States interest to just fund things that were easily solvable through mm -hmm. the Cyber process, right? Like if it's so easy to solve, Cool. Go get a loan from a bank. 
go get venture capital, go get one of the myriad of other mechanisms, frankly, in my mind, not as efficient nor as good as the civil process, but there are mechanisms for things that are not easily solvable. So there does have to be an element of technical risk. It does have to be something new. Now that technical risk, you can't just go, for example, for gene assisted eye tracking, right? We've got our first Cibber at Ascent was a direct of phase two with the Air Force Civil Engineering Corps and the 96th Civil Engineer Squad down at England. And it was for gene assisted eye tracking and MET. We could not have just gone, oh gosh, yep, tracking people indoors is tough and we're going to solve it. No, we had a specific technical plan of we will do X, Y, and Z, and here's how we will test mission success of these and the acceptance criteria is X, Y, and Z. And it culminates in a field test where we show the technical progress, but most importantly, and this is the kicker, understand the next steps to operational deployment. Because specific to the DOD, now there's some confusion, generally speaking, right? Some people think SIBRs are grants. That's broadly true for the, again, in 2021, I think the $2.8 billion of non-DOD agencies. Yeah, those are grants. NSF, NASA, most of the time, USDA, education, most of the things when non-defense industry folks think of SIBRs, they are grants. The Department of Defense, however, is a contract. And it's a ridiculously important dis distinction and in my opinion, the primary reason why I see teams proposing cyber funding to the DOD do not get it because they don't understand this important distinction. The Department of Defense cybers are a contract because the intent of the Department of Defense differs from civilian agencies, right? It's not the NSF where the NSF is just like, we just like to fund cool things. Now, those cool things need to have strong technical risk. You need to have a good team. You need to have a plan for commercialization. You need to essentially show the government that it's a good bet because the point of SIBRs is broadly, the SIBR program as a whole, the point of SIBRs broadly is not to fund technological innovation, though that's what they say. And part of it is. It's not to create it's not to create new companies, though that's part of it and it's what they say. The biggest and most important point of the CIBR program writ large, before I dive more specifically into DOD, the biggest and most important point of the CIBR program writ large is more jobs. More, more companies creating cool new widgets create jobs. Taxpayers work at jobs, or sorry, jobs create taxpayers. Taxpayers pay taxes taxes fund governments, but then very specific to the DOD. So keep that in mind, that it still has to be a good commercial economic bet for the Department of Defense for Cybers. It has to be a good economic bet. They do have to believe that it's a hard problem worth solving, that you'll create a business, you'll create jobs. Now, but also specific to the DOD, like I said, they are not just grants, or sorry, they're not grants, they are contracts. That important distinction means that Unlike the NSF, et cetera, the Department of Defense, their intent is to fund the creation of tech, to solve technical problems. And then they want that technical solution to be so good, so compelling to save American service members' lives, to save installation costs, to protect mission success, that they will go, 
okay, cool. You are now a commercial off the shelf product and we would like to buy whatever, 10 million units. That is the intent of the Department of Defense cyber process. Where I see teams really struggle is they apply in an NSF manner or NSF and other non-DOD cyber agencies, um, cyber granting agencies to the Department of Defense. They don't really think not just how is this a successful business, but how does this transition? How does this go from a cool science experiment to being deployed at every installation? Yeah. We much time about the Cyber and Center process. Tell, can you tell us what was your, what's your experience with the Center of Excellence there? Yeah, so I established the Center of Excellence for the state of Illinois, 24, at least last time I checked, that information is about a year and a half old. But when I checked about a year and a half ago, there are 24 centers of excellence across the nation. They are free to use. Very few people know about them. Um, now, they will not write your proposal for you, sadly. Um, that's a whole nother topic. Most of the industry of proposal writers is horribly parasitic. In general, there is an entire industry of parasitism built on top of the cyber process. Um, but there are a few great ones. So the FAST centers and an equivalent or a, a related organization called PTACs, Procurement and Technical Assistance Centers, although they are now renamed something in the last two years, I think they're called like Apex Accelerators or something now. I'm sure if you just Google PTAC, they'll still come up. But both of these PTAC, whatever they're called now, and FAST centers, they are spread all over this great nation. And fundamentally, they are free to use. And while they will not write your proposal, they will help, for example, for FAST centers. They have microgrants that will hire like accountants to help you write your budget in the way that is consistent with. They will review, for example, for the NSF, which has a project pitch process that they unveiled about six years ago, five years ago, to make the process of submitting much easier. They will have people look over these things. PTAC centers will help ensure you're in compliance. They'll help you work on your slick sheet, your quad chart, your, your chair chart, whatever it's called. These are all free. Fundamentally, the CIVR process and things like it, OTAs, Stratfys, TACFIs, et cetera, just broadly speaking, things to make innovation possible faster than the speed of the adversary, whether it's DOD funded or NSF or even USDA or education, I profoundly believe they are the most important program that we have for national security and ensuring American innovation and American dominance. Sivers, while they're in three words or less, they're ex accelerating DOD's innovation, getting systems to warfighters faster instead of DOD. What do you see about our innovation ecosystem in the DOD? What like strengths and weaknesses? Are there mm. things that stick out? You're like, I love that. I love that. I. Great question. Oh, uh, sad. Sadly, in some ways, the loath topic is much larger, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll answer in a way that hopefully makes sense. Um, fundamentally, it's a double-edged sword and the things that I loathe are artifacts of things that I love, right? Like the seven sins or the seven, seven virtues when taken too far become the seven sins. What I love about the DOD is that it is 
Tribal is not quite the word I'm looking for, but it's close to the word I'm looking for. It's close-knit. There's While there's a large number of innovators in this space, I think there's a much smaller subset of innovators who have the willpower to innovate, the connections to push innovation, and the giving a crap enough to pursue the right kind of innovation. That's a relatively small subset. It's hard to, to break into that, to really understand how to, to deal with the DOD. The problem is that we try to pretend it's not. The Department of Defense, warfighters, any stakeholder, right? Investors who who've worked with DOD, granting organizations for NSF, et cetera, which often push innovation alongside the DOD. Innovators, entrepreneurs, accelerators, just whatever, just things in general, they're humans. That's all they are. They're people who have a myriad of different agendas. Fortunately, most who work in this space tend to fight for freedom. Maybe sometimes their zeal for gold gets a little bit too strong, but we are a capitalist nation. And when you pursue both freedom and free markets, the invisible hand rewards. The problem is when we try and pretend that it's not. The problem is when we keep seeing all of these new, oh, I'm not going to name any specific examples, uh, but oh, this new thing has just been sprung up and it's going to ensure American innovation and really benefit the warfighter. That's great. It's a problem when every, I don't know, two months or so, I keep hearing about some new thing when there were already systems in place that worked certainly not perfectly, certainly not even very good, but pretty good. And if we had just nurtured those connections and pursued that innovation, it would have been much clearer. Instead of this big, like, name and lights, oh, new thing is announced and it's going to be great. Because I have seen, even in my pretty short time working in this industry, I've seen probably 300 different entities, networks, things come and go that are pushing innovation for the warfighter. That are like, when they're announced, they just sound so great, but it's just another agency. It's just another, and I'm using the term agency very loosely, like a group of humans are what push innovation. Yeah. So it's, a, it's the idea of the agencies are often pretty good, but they really only go as far as the, that idea enables the humans to execute the agency's mission and visions. Well, like your journey has had a little bit of that too, like important failures and lessons that you've learned. Is there one that you like really sticks out? Like if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. That mm. bit kind of really helped shape the path for, for Sam or for you as mm. long as long. Cool. Good question. Gosh, I wish I just had one failure, even a very small amount of failures to pick from, but sadly many, I think just generally speaking. That very first business where I just, I fell in love with the business. I think that was my biggest failure. I got pretty concerned with investor relations. And like I said, I'm terrible at it. I got pretty concerned with getting these contracts, getting these grants, with 
the metrics of success that a business will follow. But what I've realized as I've gotten wider and wiser is that the mission is what matters. The business is an artifact of the mission. And if I achieve success in the mission, the business achieves success. If I understand the mission, then I can capitalize on the gaps. And I'm using capitalize very specifically, capitalism. Then I can capitalize on those gaps and solve problems and hoard gold by doing so. Not as just, just in general, right? It, it's not a specific concrete failure, but it is the worst sustained, most kind of failure. Yeah. It was delusion. I, I love that. I'm taking that quote forward with Please me a lot because this is absolutely just the artifact. That's, oh man. Discussions like this are why I think, what's your view on podcasts, man? Why should people listen to more podcasts? Hmm. Why tune in to shows like Failed and Forest and others? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also typically listen to them on 1.5 or double speed, which can sometimes be headache inducing to like others in the car. So I very rarely listen to them at that speed when I'm on a road trip with, with a friend because uh, they really don't like it. <laughs> but fundamentally, podcasts are mind expanding. They're knowledge expanding. Whether it's a new way of looking at old knowledge or just learning new knowledge, they're profoundly important. I believe that every single person in this industry, and I'm using that both like defense industry, but even just like innovation, which is, is which pretty much every industry, right? Like whether you work for a great big company or a very small startup, you're doing innovation because if you're not doing innovation, then the free market's going to stomp on your neck until you stop moving. So it's all innovation, right? Like everyone in this industry is we're fighting a war against our lower selves, right? Our ability to not think critically, our ability to ignore a problem until it's, you know, we're forced to address it. Our inability to think with both, with think both at like specific ta tactical, I can't talk, tactical implementation, but also longer strategic and operational decision-making. Just Podcasts can reframe our thinking. And that's unbelievably important because if we don't think about our thinking, if we don't practice meta thinking very often, as you've seen, Graham, I journal every single morning. <laughs> if we don't often examine our thinking, it gets the best of us. Um, to quote someone smarter than me, one of our great American philosophers, Jerry Seinfeld, um, and I'm butchering the quote slightly, um, but our brains are not smart. Our brains are a stupid little dog that must be trained before it shits on the carpet. It's true. We, we yeah. fall into these like cognitive traps of whether you're a first time founder thinking of, oh, my business is great. Or later down the line of thinking, oh, we can't push innovation here. There's just too much stuff in the way. We fall into these traps. What podcasts do is by listening to different perspectives, by listening to candid conversations, they force us to re-examine our thinking, our biases, yeah. our hangups. That's awesome. That's great. 
man, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, they want to reach out to you, they want advice, they want help, they want to connect with you, where is the best place they can do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably LinkedIn. LinkedIn's, well, actually, I don't know. I get a lot of spam on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's good. Just put like something specific in the front there so I know it's not spam because I get so much. Or email alex at ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T-I, like the letter I, tech.com. That's a great way to reach me. I love to help people in this industry. I have a huge amount of materials and lecture notes and templates and all kinds of things from when I was running the Fast Center, from when I was teaching that I would just, I would love to share with anyone. Because even people that, that are direct competitors in the space of gene assist and eye tracking for the warfighter and the firefighter and health monitoring, blah, 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 I'll gladly help them because that is the mission that enables the mission. And these problems that we're solving, both as Ascent, right? Gene assessed and eye tracking and health monitoring of operators, the edge of human performance, as well as super broadly, the defense industry, or even more broadly, the innovation industry, which again, is all of industry. Like I said, if you're not innovating, the free market's going to stomp on your neck until you stop moving. These problems that we're solving are too fucking important. They are too important and they are too hard to solve for people to not, you know, lend a helping hand to each other. And when I hear teams or myself in my first business too afraid to talk to people about, oh, they're going to try and steal my IP or whatever, it's hubris. No one cares. Just help drive the mission forward and the free market will reward. That's awesome. Alex, yeah, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for having it with me. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, man. Thanks, man. You too. If you're still here, thank you so much. Um, thank you to Denlin Group for helping to craft this idea, put it together, and make it what it is, giving the heartbeat to the podcast as it stands. Um, keep coming back. We were going to record episodes with people like uh, a Vietnam veteran. He was a, he was a, a lieutenant, second oldest person in his, in his platoon. He's going to share stories about leading through uh, the Vietnam War. We've got Matt Denny Mohawk uh, from Denlin Group. He's going to come share stories about branding and just generally being awesome. Um, we've got a sports psychologist who trains with Green Berets at Robin Sage there at Fort Bragg. Um, people out of space. We've got people out of the banking industry, people out of uh, cybersecurity coming. It's, it's going to be awesome. So keep coming back. These episodes are just going to keep getting better. <laughs>